Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, my name's Pat. I'm a sexaholic. So I have the privilege of introducing William R. I know what the last name is, but I can't tell you. (laughs) William is probably my best friend. He certainly knows me more intimately than anyone ever has in my life, and I know him intimately. And that's complicated when he's your sponsor and kicks your butt regularly. So (laughs) somehow we've made it work. Um, You know, a lot of times people don't talk about other life things in their intro, so you never know some of the background, but I thought I'd say it. William, in his adult life, spent eight years working with the poor in Guatemala. He has two graduate degrees. He began a halfway house for sex offenders and uh, is one of the most courageous people I've ever met. I was at a neighborhood meeting where they were going to um, decide on whether to accept this halfway house into that neighborhood. I've never been in a lynch mob before, but honestly, I I was really scared. They, they were vicious. They were shouting, interrupting each other. And uh, William was up there with this board of directors that had several you know, distinguished people from the community, and they, nobody was having it. And uh, um, I, William regularly drives like across the state from Seattle to Walla Walla to visit an SA member who's in prison for life because of, of a sexual offense. And so here's a man who both does these courageous public things, but then there's the things that nobody ever sees him doing, and he does, does it all by, him, by himself alone somewhere. So it's that integrity that I've really come to respect a lot. William models how to be a healthy partner in his marriage. He has never sugarcoated anything about his marriage, um, and he tells me how they work things out. He's also a great dad. He's got a couple of young adult children who have gone through their own difficult things, and he's been amazing with them in terms of understanding. I'm also grateful that he qualifies for our program. Um, He has 18 years of sobriety, but uh, I've read William's Uncensored First Step, and um, he's got the same disease we do. (laughs) You know, he does. I think of um, 
one snapshot from my experience with him as a sponsor. He's been my sponsor for about 12 years. And um, that's not mine. And um, so several years ago, I came to him to tell him that I'd been lying to him for a year and a half, um, that I hadn't really been sober. I'd been accepting coins that I hadn't deserved. And um, at that point, my wife was threatening to make me take a lie detector test because she smelled a rat. And, um, and I'd, I'd stonewalled William and everyone else, and finally I went to him and told him the truth because he told me to go ask God what, what I should say. And so I went to him. And William didn't bat an eye. He uh, stepped across the room, and he gave me a great big hug, told me he loved me. And then we talked about the hard things that I needed to do. I'd tell my wife, tell the board of organization I was with, and, and so on. And he's, he's a fallible guy. I've seen William be fallible. But he's become a God with skin on for me in a lot of ways. That ability to balance asking you to do the hard thing along with this unconditional grace, that, that does it for me. So, William? I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be standing up. How about everybody stand up for a minute and just, uh, there's that saying, you know, you can, your mind can only accept what your seat endures or whatever it is. So just stand up and stretch and, you know, oh, thank you, because that's what I needed to do. <laughs> okay, you can sit down whenever you're ready. And uh, one thing that sobriety does for me in working the steps and all of this program is um, it's helped me express my needs better. One of the reasons I acted out was I didn't know how to express my needs. I didn't know how to put words to what I've, I, I need. So um, my name is William, and I am a sexaholic. And I thank God that through this program, I've been sober since June 12, 1993. I am 63 years old. So whoever was 60, 60 the other night, I think it was the Essendon. Yeah. Welcome to the 60s. Um, uh, I've been married 30 years. I remember getting, so I was acting out 12 of those years in my marriage. I acted out for a total of 32 years. So I got a ways to catch up still. But what I'm glad for in my marriage is I have more years of sobriety in that relationship than I did of acting out. It's a wonderful milestone. So I called my wife to ask her to, to ask her to pray for me for tonight. And um, I'm a little more emotional maybe than usual because I was uh, admitting to one of the groups I was in today that 
I didn't tell my sponsor or my doctor, but I decided to go off the medication I'm on for a while. And uh, I'm taking a, 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 one of these SSRI type things. And um, uh, so I'm a little bit more raw than general in terms of my emotions. But anyway, when I called my wife and asked her to pray for me, one thing she said in her prayer was that William has tested and tried the program of Sexaholics Anonymous and found it to be the solution. Isn't that wonderful to have your, your spouse say that? <laughs> she has seen the solution lived out now for 18 years. Not successfully all the time. In fact, i got to tell you, this isn't on my, my notes. And what time am I supposed to wrap up here? Because i got to decide. It's 5 to 8. When to... Uh, Why don't you just take 30 minutes? 30 minutes. No, I won't go as long as I want. That would be terrible, because uh, <laughs> I'm not known for my boundaries. And... and uh, <laughs> But uh, I will, we'll see how we go here. But um, my wife and I went to, uh, what, I really want to talk about the last 14 years of sobriety. Uh, I'll let you take Pat's word for it that I belong in this room. And I want to talk about living the solution, or that there is a solution, and what my experience is in the last 14 years of my sobriety. What's happened? Um, and um, so one of the things that's most obvious is that it, it is progress, not perfection, and I make mistakes in my relationship with my wife that result in consequences. And this is a fun consequence. Well, it wasn't fun at the time, but it, it uh, certainly taught me something. And we were going to the movie with her uh, cousin's son from England. She's English, and... My son, Matthew, who at the time was in the program, he's no longer in the program, but I think he got what he needed while he was here. And um, we were going to see this movie in Lincoln Square, downtown Bellevue. Uh, the movie theater's on the third floor, and uh, there's an elevator that goes up two floors, and, but we usually get off on the first floor and then go up the escalator to the second and third floor. But this time, for some reason, I said, well, why don't we go up to the second floor and see if we can get to the theater that way? And my wife said, oh, no, we can't do that. And just as we were having this conversation, the elevator door opened and people started coming in and people started going out. And, and I turned to my son, who was behind me. My wife was just in front of me. And I said, we can let mom run the show. <laughs> Kind of from the big book, it talks about God running the show, right? <laughs> Next thing I knew, I had an elbow in, in the stomach. And uh, it was like, oh my God, how did that happen? I don't want to go to the movies with this woman. We've only been married 28 years or whatever it was. And um, my son and the other young man kind of distanced themselves a little bit and the people going in the elevator go 
<laughs> people go, uh, coming out, you know, scoot by us, and uh, we, my wife and I walk toward the theater, and I say, wow, you know. Well, she said, you obviously hit a nerve. <laughs> and um, I think, well, the theater's pretty good size. She can sit on that far side, and I'll sit on the other side. And, and uh, my son comes up to me, and he says, Dad, you want to go in the bathroom and process this? <laughs> I taught him to do step work, 10 step work. And that's really what you want to go in the bathroom and do a 10 step on this. What was I going to say to him? No, I don't feel like it. <laughs> so we went in the bathroom and, you know, we didn't tell my wife where, I, I was, where we were going, so she was upset about that as well. But anyway, we're in the bathroom. He says, okay, Dad, what's going on? I said, well... You know, I'm, I've done, I say my wife is the recipient of more 10 steps than anybody else in the world. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I said, well, doing my step work um, on it in my head, that whole incident in the elevator wouldn't have happened if I hadn't, <laughs> if, if I, how's that? If I hadn't made the comment I made, I, pu I publicly embarrassed your mother. And um, I said, well, that sounds good. So I thought, well, that's, let's say that's the fifth step. And, and uh, I, really, it pushed my control buttons. I had my mother controlled and dominated my father, and I'm still working through the... the the issues sometimes they come up like here and um, so we come back out and uh, I say okay the ninth step is a, an amends I'm going to make I made a public comment I'll make a public amends my son was flabbergasted right there in the middle of the movie line I say Rosalind I'm sorry I said what I said to you coming out of the elevator and she said I'm sorry for my response You know, and for me, step work is like, it doesn't always remove the feelings, but it changed, changes the rudder of my direction, my emotional direction. And it, by the end of the movie, it was like, okay, you know, I don't think I'll do that again for a while. And we, am I too loud or too soft? <laughs> I'm willing to try anything once. <laughs> That's quite all right. I get to replace this kind of like in a game where you get time out, you get to add it back right to the yeah. 30 minutes. Wait for a second. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I started at the elevator. <laughs> this wasn't even on my list of things to tell you, but it was, so one of the things that I love about recovery is I can laugh. I can laugh at myself. I can just, I can just have a good time. When I was acting out, man, good times were few and far between. So get this, we go back, my wife and I, 
you know, to the elevator another time for another movie, right? And it's like, we've been here before. I know what I'm not going to say. <laughs> and she looks at me, and I look at her, and she's, I, I say, where would you like to go? She said, why don't we go to the second floor? <laughs> I said, okay. And we went to the second floor. Get this. We're going to another, we like movies. My wife loves movies. I only go to movies with another person. That's just a boundary for me. And, and uh, my wife's usually the person I do it with, though I go sometimes with program people. So anyway, the third time we're in the elevator, same elevator, same place. I look at her and say, how about now? What would you like to do? Listen to this. She said, you lead. <laughs> I thought, wow, I should do more step work. This is great. <laughs> this is great. So anyway, I call this, what I wanted to share with you is kind of what I've learned about life and sobriety. And I, gotta, I just love the title of this retreat, There is a Solution. If you heard my first step, you wouldn't believe I'm sober today. <laughs> I would eat, I, I, you know, by rights I should be in prison, in an insane asylum, or dead. It's, it's that, that crazy. So, my, so there is a solution. I am a living example of the solution for day, today. I can't promise it about, can't promise anything about tomorrow. It is a daily reprieve. But, the subtitle I've got for this is Lessons in Humility. And the reading I wanted to share with you, the, the few examples I have, there's about, well, there's, there's more than I'll, I can address tonight. But I wanted to read from you from step seven in the 12 and 12. It says on page 70, Indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of AA's 12 steps. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic or sexaholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs or SAs that I've met with longer-term sobriety have found, too, that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than may be required for just sobriety, they still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live too much useful purpose or in adversity be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. It would be great if life ceased to have emergencies just because we got sober, wouldn't it? <laughs> no elbows in the elevator. No. So, I want to go back to, I moved to Seattle from Southern California, and uh, I spent four years getting started in SA in Southern California. Um, 
I had the privilege of Roy Kay starting me out on the steps and uh, the founder of the program getting me started. And you know what? One thing we had, one thing I wanted to mention was we had, my wife and I had lunch with him. I was brand new, been to a few meetings, you know, asked if he'd be, he said he'd be my temporary sponsor. He didn't sponsor people much in, by then, but he said, I'll be, I'll get you started. And so we went and had lunch with him and his wife, Irene, in their place. And we're sitting there, my wife's brand new, I'm brand new, and he, he looks across at me and says, uh, at the time we're both in theological seminary in graduate school, and we have two kids, eight, uh, 93, eight, three and seven, and I'm working two jobs and act, getting up at midnight to act out. <laughs> wasn't enough time in the day. And Roy K. looks at me and he says, William, right in front of my wife, William, S.A. has to be first in your life. I think, what's that look like? When do I fit it in? S.A. So with my sponsees or on, on, tomorrow, I, I say, what does that look like for me? If I want to stay sober tomorrow, what does it mean to say SA, the program, God through the program of Sexaholics Anonymous needs to be first in my life tomorrow? So um, then it came up that they were going on vacation and, and, and his wife, Roy, was off doing something and his wife said, yeah, he's going to be going to a meeting here and a meeting there and a meeting wherever. And I said, he goes to meetings on vacation? <laughs> so anyway, that's enough about it. Okay. So we get to Washington. We both spent eight years in theological, in seminary, because it took us both that long to, to both do three-year degrees. And... Um, and my wife, I was the one that wanted to go to seminary. I thought it would finally fix my sexaholism. Reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew might help, but it didn't help. <laughs> and, um, and we're both, we're kind of in competition the whole time at seminary. I study longer and harder to try and maintain a higher grade point average and all of that stuff. And, and we come to the end of seminary, and my wife gets this incredible job at a large church in Bellevue, Washington. Has 3,500 members right now. It's a big church. She's a public figure. We, we kind of, I kind of think. I'm, we have different last names, and people call me by her last name. They don't even realize I have my own identity. So, so anyway, we get up there. I mean, we finish seminary. She gets the job. I get the kids. <laughs> and get to be Mr. Mom. Get, we're moving around trying to find a house. We don't have a home. We don't have any money left. We spend it all on graduate school. And I'm sending my wife off to work saying, bye, honey, going to PTA meetings and thinking, this is the, the pits. You know, I believe in equality, but this isn't equality. I'm, <laughs> I'm st stuck in the house with my kids. I haven't been sober four years to do this. God has something more important for me to do. I mean, I love, 
So we're walking one day in the park with my kids on a Sunday while my wife is busy in front of all these people and very important person, a pastor. And I'm walking with my kids in the park and my son looks up at me and says, Daddy, aren't you having a great time being, spending more time with us? Aren't you having a great time? And I, I look down and say, yeah, really, this is great. Um, so anyway, I came to love the fact that I got to be uh, with my kids as much as I did. And, and, uh, but there was more re- resentment and jealousy about my wife getting the job that I had longed to have. And um, so um, one day, a couple months after we arrived in Seattle, I was sitting at my desk after getting everybody off to school and jobs. And uh, I said to God, you must have something else for me to do besides being a um, good husband and a father to my children. And I get a call from a trustee of Sexaholics Anonymous. And they say, we have boxes of letters from inmates around the country asking for help. And we have no no way to respond to them, so they've just gone in boxes. Would you be open to going through the boxes and presenting a program to our fellowship of how we can respond to these letters? And you know, uh, it says in here, there's one other line related to the humility thing. It says, somehow I'd never put this together. It's talking about humility and how important it is, right? And on the next page it says, the basic ingredient of all humility is a desire to seek and do God's will. <laughs> here I was studying eight years to be a pastor, but hell if I was going to do God's will if it wasn't didn't fit in with my image of it which was being in front of a large church and being seen as righteous even though I was a sexaholic and I'm much better here than there. <laughs> much more comfortable. I can be my full self. I don't have to live that dual life any longer. And um, so, you know, I get this call and I know there's another line, one of my favorite lines in the AA Big Book is, we are here to play the role God assigns. And you know, I'm thinking, oh my God, I finally, because I didn't get the job I wanted, because I've been hanging out with the kids and being the, the home person, I've finally gotten to the place where I'm humble enough to do the next assignment, which is to help SA organize this prison program. So we organized, we organized a committee, the uh, Sexaholics Anonymous Correctional Facility Committee, and it's functioning today, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. And um, um, I wanted to read, one of the things that's happened to me and, and was part of this process is that I got a, uh, I, I find myself, I call it crying God's tears, <laughs> You know, feeling the compassion that God feels for the sexaholic or sometimes for other people. 
just weeping, knowing how much God loves people. And this was a letter that when I, or email, that when I read through it, I burst into tears. It's a wonderful gift to cry for people you don't even know. It's worth all my acting out and all the, the facing of the wrongs that I have done to get to that place where I can feel what it's like to weep for people who are suffering from this disease. So this letter basically says, listen to this. This is from a psychologist. I'll leave the name of the prison off of it. It says, let me introduce myself. My name is so-and-so. Uh, I'm the psychological specialist at this correctional institution, and I'm in charge of the sex offender program. Now, what we would like to arrange is a safe, in capital letters, way of instituting an SA group or similar program at our institution. The major problem is lack of funds. We have a grand total of zero dollars and a bunch of, as we call them, bubba cops for correctional officers who harass, <laughs> who harass our sex offender inmates and in particular the pedophiles, of which I am one. In fact, last week we had two of our pedophiles raped, one by other inmates because following disclosure by the correctional staff of the individual's status as a pedophile. The other was raped by three correctional staff sergeants who intimidated the inmate, a mentally retarded inmate, into recanting his allegations, and the local inspector dropped the investigation as unfounded. Can you offer any suggestions, any materials, any organizational help? Does God care about what happened there? I believe he does. So let me share. Crap, this time, this clock. Is, is mine running faster? We just. <laughs> I had like four things. And... Okay, so let me tell you one, uh, an example then of, uh, of one thing that happened during this time too. One of the trustees of SA was doing 12-step workshops uh, in pretty much the uh, Catholic settings, and he invited me to come and share my story in, in this, at, one, at some of his mission 12-step workshops. I thought, oh, great, yeah, go in the middle of a sanctuary and talk about masturbating and compulsive sexuality. That sounds just like what I'd like to do. <laughs> So I go and I, you know, you, you know, it's I'm in the world to play the role God assigns. Maybe there's some there. There are at least two men who were at those workshops who are in SA today because I was there at at those workshops. So anyway, I go, I go over to Bremerton to get to, from Seattle to Bremerton. You have to take a ferry, and I hadn't been to Bremerton, so I didn't really know my way around. Been, uh, so. Uh, he said, it's easy to find the church. And, but I get over there on the ferry, uh, and uh, I stop at a bagel shop to ask directions. And I'm speaking to the person on the, at this counter, and uh, 
she's starting to tell me, and this guy walks out of the back room, and he says, are you going to the mission at the Catholic Church? I said, yeah. He said, well, if you hang around, I was planning to go, I'll give you a ride. I said, okay. So we're driving up there. He says, are you a priest? I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, oh, okay. I said, yeah, no, I'm just coming because I'm, uh, I'm, I was asked to be part of the, the presentation tonight. I said, oh, okay. So I got, I got up in front of the church and told my story uh, in a way that could, was appropriate for that setting. But I talked about my, my family history, stuff you're, you're not hearing tonight, and my you know, compulsive activity or sexual behavior. And after the session, this same fellow comes up to me and says, can I give you a ride back to the ferry? <coughs> I said, okay. So we're driving back to the ferry, and he says, he had, he said, on the way home, he explains that he is living at the bagel shop at the request of his wife. He had sexually abused his two daughters. He had told the pastor of the church and thought he would soon be reported to the authorities. He said to God that day, if God didn't send someone, he was going to commit suicide. Who can arrange something like that? Would I have been available if I'd been a pastor in some church? If If I hadn't gone through my own stuff and gotten to SA and gotten help? Would I have been been ready to... To be of service? Hmm. Man, I was as high as a kite for days after that, just to know I was, you know, went to the right bagel shop. (laughs) (laughs) So we got to get to this. I'm wearing, let's see, where are we in my few little samples of lessons in humility? Oh, you got to hear this one. This is great. It's a little bit like the theater, but my wife was working 60 hours a week, you know, and I was just feeling orphaned and like I was stuck at home. I mean, only be the wife of a pastor if you have to be. That's what I say. (laughs) So thank goodness she doesn't listen to these tapes and it's not a member of us. So anyway, we're having dinner with some friends from the church and, and, uh, I make off-the-wall comments. You might have guessed that by now. And, and she, she was sitting there, and we were having a nice Thai dinner, and I say, you know, it's really difficult being married to a pastor. <laughs> Friends look across at us, and my wife looks over at me and sees red, and she says, well, at the time, I was working part-time for SA and not earning much money. They don't pay people much money if you decide to work for them. <laughs> and uh, she says, it's really difficult being married to a man without a job. I thought, boy, she lowered the bar. <laughs> and our friends are sitting like, okay, what do we say next? <laughs> So, as God would have it, you know, later that week or the next week, I was having lunch with a, my 
the person who's turned out to be my current, my sponsor for the last 14 years, 13 years, he's from Portland and he was, I mean, he's, he's in Portland. He used to be in Seattle and uh, we were having lunch together and I had never had lunch with him before, but I'd seen him around at meetings and I, I was kind of in between sponsors because I'd moved up from Southern California. And um, so anyway, I was just, and he had lots of sobriety. So um, we were having lunch and, and I, I said, one of the things I've learned to do in the program is talk about my life. What's really going on, you know, not sugarcoated. And I said to him, hey, you know, I was having dinner with my wife the other night with some friends. And I said this. And she said this. And he looked at me and he said, you said what? <laughs> I always like sponsors who are a little bit less passive aggressive than me. And this sponsor is not passive aggressive. He is very direct. And it cuts through my stuff to have somebody who's, who can, can be direct. So I said, you know... I didn't repeat myself. I kind of said, well, you heard what I said. He said, well, you know what you should have said? I mean, you know, very suggest. It's a suggested program, right? <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, what should I have said? I said exactly what I felt. It's very difficult being married to a pastor. She's never home. So he says, you should have said you are grateful she is providing for the family because you don't have a job. <laughs> I thought, didn't he hear what I just said? <laughs> he says, and you should add, she is being used by God in a wonderful way in people's lives and ministry. And you know she loves you and the kids very much and comes home whenever she can to be with you. It still gets me going. So I come home and I'm thinking, man, it's unbelievable. Those thoughts wouldn't have entered my head in a million years. <laughs> if you got a sponsor putting in your head ideas you already got, you got the wrong sponsor. <laughs> so anyway, I go I go home, you know, and and this is really shortly after the the conversation at dinner so things are kind of tight you know a little bit of tension around the house and I think I cannot say this to her there's just no way I can say it to her I can't I'm not ready to make an amends and by no means can I tell her what this guy I just met or just had lunch with said so I sleep on it you know sometimes that helps and so I slept on it. the next morning I look over at her. We have a king-size bed for good reasons. <laughs> I look over at her on the other side of the bed and I say, you know, I had lunch with a guy in the program yesterday. She says, yeah. I said, he told me to tell you this. 
looks at me and she says, you should have lunch with that guy more often. <laughs> Crap. So I got to tell you this last one, even though I'm pushing my half hour here. Um, I'm wearing this outfit for, it's uh, what bus drivers wear for uh, King County, which is the county I live in, and I drive bus for King County. And um, when I finished the work I was doing for SA, uh, they actually kicked me out. I didn't know what to do. I, didn't, I just didn't know what to do as a sober sexaholic because my professions, both teaching and, and really working in the church, were undercut by my recognition of some of the issues I have around attraction to minors. And it just wasn't appropriate for me to be in leadership positions like that. So I, uh, I was, my sponsor kept saying, you need to get a job. It will help your self-esteem and depression. I mean, he just has all these ideas about how I can get better. And I said, okay, okay, okay. I said, okay, for about a year. And finally, I said, I'm going to call you every day until I've got a job. And... Um, and I'm wondering, well, God, what, what can I do? And I mean, I can't use my graduate degrees. I can't, what, what can I do? And one of my sponsees says, you might try driving bus part-time. I thought, me? I'm more important than a bus driver. So I was telling another friend in the program who has long-term sobriety about my, my, how I felt about this possibility and the fact I was going to have to wear a uniform if I drove bus. And he looked at me and he said, even generals wear uniforms. <laughs> but I still could hardly stand wearing this outfit. I wore it tonight because for me it's a lesson in humility. I, would, I didn't want to be seen in this outfit, even in SA, you know, because I, for me it was blue collar and, and I, I wanted to put on my fair box, my graduate degree <laughs> diploma, so people would know, you know, that I was a well educated bus driver. <laughs> so get, this, is, this has really got to be a humorous thing. We should see if we could do this more often. Um, I was still so resentful about driving bus, and my daughter had also... This is what happens when you don't do 10 steps, this, this exam. I was very, still really resentful. My wife had this important job. I was driving bus, and um, I talked about it. I just couldn't shake it. And my daughter had totaled one car, and we got in another car, and she got in an accident with it, and she said she couldn't drive a stick shift, so I'm driving this this car and I'm codependent so I'd given her my other car and I'm driving this car to work one morning it's kind of icy and foggy and I get in the car at five in the morning start off up our road and I'm you know trying to get to work on time and I'm look not looking at the windshield versus what's really in front of me and I run into a metro bus <laughs> total the car <laughs> On my way to work, you know, a thousand yards from our house, I run them back, a 60-foot bus, and I'm in a little Toyota Corolla or whatever it was that was no more after I did that. And 
I run back to the house. It was drivable, so I get back to the house, hop in my wife's car, go to work, get to the window where you get your assignment, and I say, I think I ran into the back of a Metro bus. <laughs> and the guy looks at me and he says, hold on, hold right there. He calls, finds out, yeah, there was an accident on the street where, near where I live, and he says, I think maybe you ought to skip work today. <laughs> so I went home and skipped work. So then there's one other thing uh, I wanted to say, which is I love the people I meet on the bus. And one of the current passengers I've had have is named Nicole. And I don't know what disability she has, but it, it affects her mind and her body. But she is, and she's very childlike. And she works at one of the theaters for, you know, an hour or two a day. And when she gets on the bus, I say, how are you today, Nicole? And she looks at me and she says, I am wonderful. So that's what I want to close with tonight is that because of this program, I am wonderful. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.